Welcome to Excel Radio with Dr. Nick Zarowski, where we talk with world-class entrepreneurs, executives, and health experts who have unlocked the secrets to Excel Health and performance. Hi, and welcome to Excel Radio. This is your health and high-performance expert, Dr. Nick Zarowski. In this episode, I speak with the founder of Ignited Leadership, Jason Connell. Ignited Leadership is a dynamic human service organization that is dedicated to building a better future. Through live events and one-on-one coaching, Jason works with young adults and future leaders so that they can elevate their minds, hearts, and horizons and serve as tomorrow's visionaries. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you on. So, Jason, can you explain to me what your company, Ignite Leadership, is doing right now? Yeah, absolutely. I I work primarily with young adults, like 18 to 25, 30-year-olds, to help them develop self-love and self-compassion, which is a skill that, in my experience, is, is really lacking with a lot of people who otherwise ostensibly have their life together. Okay. And so you're you're been more or less coaching to them? Is that what you're doing? So to a certain degree, I, I spend time coaching, but the vast majority of my time is spent either speaking or writing. I, I work with colleges and universities, businesses that hire a lot of young adults, and, and most of my time is spent speaking at different conferences that attract like entrepreneurs or athletes or creatives like that. Okay, perfect. Pretty cool. So, you know, how did you get into this work? <laughs> it's the probably the most honest answer is like a certain amount of ignorance. Uh, so I was a child entertainer, a, a professional magician. Okay. And when I was nine years old, I was performing for like ten, fifteen dollars at my neighbor's birthday party. And with the help of a really good manager and a lot of work and a lot of luck, the the experience grew into something where by the time I was eighteen years old, I was performing for Fortune five hundreds and professional sports teams and doing as many as six shows a week. And then I left it. Like I, at 18, I had spent so much time being professional that I thought it was ridiculous. So I walked away from that and tried to become a normal college student. And I failed at that. I, I did, looking back, I don't know that there is such a thing as like a normal college student, but I found myself always like in the library or writing papers and just ignoring this very real part of me that wanted to like explore and like come to life and experience the world firsthand instead of reading about it. And I think a lot of college students can relate to that. I think a lot of people can relate to that. But instead of ignoring that, I, I dropped out of school and spent three years traveling the world. And I didn't have any money when I was 19, but I was able to get corporations in the United States to sponsor me to travel around the world. Anyways, long story short, spent three years traveling and volunteering all around the world, came back to school, graduated, and a university asked if I would speak about my experience traveling and volunteering all around the world. And that went surprisingly well. At at the time, I was 22. And I think in part because of my age, I was really able to connect with the students that I was speaking to. The other part was all the training that I had for being on stage as a child entertainer. And a handful of those students, I, I think the first talk that I gave at a college was a guest lecture and there were like 22 or so students in the classroom and to my shock and delight about a third of them spent the following summer volunteering and many of them used the strategies that I had used and that I had shared with them to get corporate sponsors so they didn't have to pay for their experience and then college and university started noticing like 
hey, this weird 22-year-old kid that we've never even heard of before has a knack for getting our students to, to volunteer and make a, a, an impact in their communities locally and globally. And I was doing that for a while. I was lecturing on that, and I hit a wall with myself where I was successful on paper. Like I had a decent amount of income, and I had more clients that I could handle, and all the metrics that an entrepreneur would use or a speaker would use to measure success. I had those, but I was quietly pretty miserable myself, and I realized what was missing from my life. You know, I think a, I'm curious about your perspective, but I think a lot of the feedback we get from Society is this idea that if you hit certain tangible goals, like you have a mansion or you have your dream job or you drive a fast car or you go to great parties, that suddenly you'll be happy. And I had like all the tangible goals I desired right. that looking back like had been manipulated into my head, but mm -hmm. I still wasn't happy. And I, I realized I like literally woke up one day and realized like I've never learned to love myself. I've never taken on the challenge of like figuring out who I am and being gentle with that and respectful and compassionate and loving towards that. So I got into it through building a life for myself that wasn't an authentic representation of who I was. And then as I started working more and more on searching for authenticity in myself, I realized this is something that a lot of people, because it's not something we learn in school, it's not something that our friends talk about, I, I realized it's something that a lot of people could use help with. And in my experience, especially people that are driven to build great lives for themselves, often skip over this idea of connecting deeply to themselves and treating themselves as though they're a truly awesome person. Right, exactly. Now, you talk about how you've come across some dark times in your life. Now, is that when you were actually, you said you had met some of these tangible goals, however, you really weren't happy with yourself. Is that is that all linked together? Yeah, big time. So there's, there's a couple preludes. Like, I... It, I'd like I'm happy to talk about this and, and, and talk about death because I think we should talk about death. But specifically what happened for me is like leading up to this breakdown or this moment in my life, two of my friends had died over the course of about a year. One had killed himself and the other, um, he drowned. We, we were on a camping trip and my friend drowned. It, was, it seems like one of those things that doesn't actually happen to you, but it, it happened wow. to me and the, the 10 other guys that I was with. And I kind of did the best I had to cope with that, with the tools that I had available to me. And all the while, I'm sort of like on tour speaking and working with people to volunteer and improve their communities. And then in one sort of really emotionally demanding couple of weeks, my best friend who I'd been living with for a couple of years moved away. And as I was like packing the U-Haul with him and our other guy friends, I had to like choke back tears because I didn't want to cry in front of my guy friend. I had been dating this woman, really spectacular woman, and we broke up. And, and like, to be transparent, I broke up with her. And um, so immediately my support system, my best friend, my girlfriend are gone. And then shortly thereafter, a third friend of mine died. He, he was uh, 28 years old, not in great health. Like this is not somebody who took really good care of his body. Um, and his heart stopped. And he was wow. in China at the time. And by the time they got him to the hospital, like he was, he was long since dead. And I... All three of those things, the girlfriend, the best friend, the friend passing away, happened while I was in the final rehearsal for a, um, for a, a pretty crazy tour. It's going to be like 40 or 50 speeches. And I remember getting off stage one morning. I was in Kansas City. It was a morning talk and going back to this luxury hotel room and just breaking down. Like I hadn't really dealt with any of my friend's deaths, let alone the, the one that had just died. I kind of suppressed the breakup with my girlfriend. And as a guy, you're never told to like, you're never told as a guy that it's okay to 
cry when your best friend moves away. But you're mm-hmm. never told that it's okay to like be really upset about that or to lean into those feelings. So a lot came to a head for me while I'm in this really demanding cycle of, of work professionally. And that's when it became apparent to me that it's like, wow, you need to work on your self-love and your self-compassion. Yeah, I gotcha. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it's certainly a, a lot of people go through a lot of tough times like that. So it's really awesome you're transparent with it because I, you know, that's one of the things that a lot of people aren't going to talk about. So, you know, when you're probably on stage and transparent with this type of thing, a lot of people can probably relate very closely and learn a lot from what you've been through, I'm sure. Yeah, and, and I appreciate that. And what you just said is so critical. People feel alone and like, like it, the more you talk about the loss of a loved one or just having your heart ripped out of your chest by a breakup or a rejection or whatever, the more you realize that like this is a universal human experience. It's just not part right. of the narrative of modernity, which is, you know, it's criminal to the people that make up society. Right, exactly. <laughs> so you work with people on leadership, you know, so you're, you're helping these young adults um, change the world. And when you go around and you're speaking to these young adults that, and these young entrepreneurs that are movers and shakers, what is, what is some of the things that's really missing from uh, the modern society's young adult? Man, that's an interesting question. I think one of the, I think the biggest missing component in, in modernity is young adult, but I, I don't think this is just young adults. I think it's just something adults have grown numb to is the realization that they're okay. Like when I move through through life, if I'm not being intentional about my, my like headspace, I feel like there's something wrong with me. The fact of the matter is, and, and I think a lot of people, if, you're, if you have the courage to open up, say, hey, you know, I feel like there's something kind of wrong with me. I think a lot of people can relate to that. I think that because I've had thousands of people say I can relate to that. But there's, there's really, it, with any given individual, at their core, I don't believe there's anything wrong with them. But what's happened is, society through religion, through education, through your peers, through the politicians, especially through marketers, has told you that you are incomplete until you pray to God five times a day, until you eat a paleo diet, until you own a Porsche or whatever. And then you get that and there's something wrong with me. And that's just not true. There's nothing wrong with any like randomly selected individual. What's wrong is that we have built a society that doesn't truly encompass like the authentic individual or the authentic person and it adds to a certain amount of neurosis. So if I had to pinpoint one thing that's missing in the average leader, young leader that I've worked with, it would be a really simple awareness that there's nothing wrong with you. And if you feel like there's friction between yourself and the rest of the world, that's not something wrong with you. It's something wrong with the lines of society that we've created. Okay. As you go around and you're teaching these people to become leaders, these young adults, um, what is the most, the number one most important skill that you have to teach them in order to become a leader? Oh, I love that question. So first of all, it's, it's kind of, it's how you conceptualize leadership. So leadership is like, it's a word kind of like genocide or love that you can spend a lot, a lot, a lot of time trying to define. And I want to make it simple, like leadership at its absolute core is influence. If you're the guy or the gal in the room that can get everyone else to see the world how you want them to, and especially if you can get them to behave how you want them to behave, you're a leader. As simple as that. But when I look at our world, it's a world that needs a lot of work done. And the example that comes to mind that resonates with me is that like every single day you see homeless people in every single United States city. And it's just ridiculous because there's not a lack of money. There's not a lack of shelter. 
we've just created a world where people are prioritizing income and influence and, and, and stuff like that, as opposed to improving the quality of life on Earth. So the concept that I hope young leaders master is a pretty simple one. And it is measuring their leadership in terms of proactively improving the quality of life on Earth. So the question that I hope people ask themselves and the skill that I hope they cultivate is, did my actions or did my words improve other people's lives? And that can start with you. And I think one disconnect is so often we, we look at quote-unquote leaders and we assume that they're extroverted, that they're charismatic, that they're millionaires, that they've been elected or appointed. And that's, that just doesn't have to be true. If you measure your success as a leader by how many people's lives you've improved, you can start off by inviting a lonely guy or a lonely gal to a study group if you're a student or to a party if you're, if you're an adult. And you're improving his or her life and slowly but surely – your work will ripple through to go on to improve our wider global communities or your local community or whatever it is you're training your focus on. That's yeah, that's very interesting. So, you know, as you go around and you speak at these different colleges, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing that, you know, cause you're talking about leadership and, and, you know, um, you know, becoming an entrepreneur and, and that sort of thing. Well, it's really interesting that like when I speak to, you know, business owners and, and, and even, um, uh, business owners who hire a lot of employees, one of the things that they will tell you that like anymore, it's super, super hard to get somebody who actually wants to come in the room and they want to work hard and they want to, um, and they, and they really actually like put effort and love into the job that they're doing. And so, you know, is, is that something that you see as a problem with a lot of these young adults as you're uh, going and in, in, in speaking with them that, you know, they're just not really set up for the workplace or they really just don't have um, what it takes and, or, or maybe they just don't care? Like, what is it? I've, you know, I hear that a lot. Like, I'm, I'm 29, so I hear questions like that. Like, hey, what's up with your generation? And that's, that's by the way, is not what you asked. I'm aware of that. Um, but I, I don't think there is any problem at all with my generation. I do think a little bit we're in a transition period. But what I think has happened beyond the fact that we're in a transition period is that on one hand, if we're talking about like employee, employer structures, on one hand, I think that because my generation by and large inherited a really difficult economy, that we are very quick to take jobs regardless of if we are aligned with one another. On the other hand, I think that to some degree, employers are being kind of irresponsible in not fully portraying what is expected of the employee. As recently, coaching a, a business owner, her business is growing very, very rapidly. It's one of those businesses that went from you know, tens of thousands of dollars to being now valued a couple months later in, in the low millions. And she was telling me, she's like, you know, I really want my employees to put in 60-hour work weeks and then kind of think that that wasn't quite enough. Mm-hmm. And whether, which I, you know, I personally don't think that's healthy. And I, I sort of mentioned as much to this, this business owner. But the real question I asked is, well, did you make that clear at the outset? And no, of course she hadn't. So to some degree, the responsibility is on the employer to, ha- to okay. set realistic expectations for what you're looking for. And, and one company that is often talked about for this is Zappos. Like Zappos will train and acclimate their employees and then offer them, I don't know the exact amount, but like several thousand dollars to leave and to walk away instead of signing the, the longer term commitment contract. And okay. I think that's brilliant because suddenly you only have employees whose authentic selves 
are aligned with the authentic mission of the corporation. So I think that you would see less friction, perhaps is the best word, mm-hmm. if one, people entering the job market or new to the job market only truly found jobs or, or accepted jobs that are authentic to who they are. And two, if the employers were a little more transparent about what they're actually going to expect of their employees. And I should hedge this and say, like, look, I know this is a tough market. I know that a lot of times you can't, don't have the luxury of finding the job that you want and you have to take the job that just is put in front of you. And I, I hope what people in that situation do is they're responsible themselves. They get the job they need so they can provide a life to themselves. But all the while, they don't surrender. They keep trying to find a better position for themselves until their work is an authentic representation of themselves. And that can take, you know, not just days and weeks and months, but often years to get right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You were just talking about this lady that you're coaching and you were saying that her business is doing, you know, exceedingly well, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, to a lot of people, when you say that yeah, her, her business is doing well and, you know, it, it sounds like the good life that she's living, right? But you always talk about a dark side to leadership. Can you kind of go into that in, in, in like expound on that whole topic of, you know, even though this lady could be having an amazing company but she's she's a leader within the company but like there's a little there could be a dark side to that and you talk about that quite a bit can you tell us about that yeah absolutely there's a huge dark side to success and leadership and that is that it is wildly wildly seductive and it goes back to that cultural narrative of when you make a million dollars or when you achieve whatever external goal that you'll suddenly be happy and what le- leadership in, in many ways is a lot like alcohol. Like alcohol, if you are sober and you start drinking, it's just going to magnify how you already feel. So if you're depressed and like angry and you get drunk, it's, it's just going to be more depressing and you're just going to be angrier. Success it, it, as an entrepreneur, as a leader, is really, really, really similar. It's, it's going to magnify whatever you have inside of you. So unless you take the time to, and, and by the way, this is like a mistake that I've made myself. I have direct experience with this. Unless you take the time to work on yourself and like see your demons and in many cases work with them or accept them or stare them down depending on what sort of demon they are. By the time you throw yourself into your work and you're working 50, 60, 70 hours a week like a lot of entrepreneurs do in the beginning, that alone, by the way, is a demon, um, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse because you can't really run from, from the stuff that you're trying to suppress. You just have to give it space and eventually it will come up whether you want it to or not. Right. Absolutely. So the three strategies to prevent leadership from destroying you then, you talk about that as well. Yeah, I'm not sure if I would say that there's just like specifically three, but I I think the real onus on the leader or anybody that's truly ambitious is to take on the challenge and find the courage of being authentic. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really hard because so much has been superimposed upon us as far as expectations from society Absolutely. and expectations from ourselves. And Which I can be my, worse. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm glad you pointed that out because I have been way harsher with myself in a lot of cases than society's ever been with me. And I know I'm not unique in that regard. Oh, absolutely not. And I, I think the onus on the leader or the person who's striving to really build something for herself or himself is to nudge reality around a little bit and create space for yourself for reflection. And there's a lot of ways to do that. What I like to do is I like to turn my phone and computer off and go someplace far away from the world by myself for a few days and let my demons go by and like see what my demons are, see if I'm motivated just because I'm trying to get somebody's approval or because I don't think I'm worthy 
unless mm. I actually have achieved something, or if I'm motivated because there's something that I'm super just wildly excited for and I'm chomping the bit and can't hold back. And I think you know there's a lot of tools to make sure that success doesn't destroy you as, as you're building it. But I think the most powerful thing somebody can do is step back, remove as many of the influences as possible, and be really, really, really authentic and honest with themselves. And that's, that's hard. That requires a lot of vulnerability. And most people don't take the time to do that. And when they do, they find that you have to have a huge amount of courage to shine a bright light on yourself. Right, exactly. But I think it's pretty important. I think it's really important to make sure you also have that vulnerability uh, aspect of it, so you don't crash as a leader. Because if you, if you if you aren't vulnerable in some way, then you know you could. Who knows which rabbit trail you might end up taking? Yeah, well said. I mean, we're like, if you're not vulnerable in some way, you're denying the reality that you're a human. Like as humans, we are we are at times physically and emotionally vulnerable creatures. To pretend otherwise is, you know, ridiculous. I understand the allure, but it's just denial. Right. And I feel that even like, you know, some of these let's say businessmen that you see on TV and they're just tough, straight face, like, you know, they're it's probably hard to believe that they're actually like that all the time. They're probably like <laughs> really soft other times, but they have to like prep themselves and be like, All right, I act this way, you know, when I'm on the screen and, you know, like if, if they were like that all the time, like they would probably be the most miserable creatures and who knows, maybe they are. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And I think that's another one of the traps that we kind of fall into in this culture is like, and I'm like, you are the doctor here, so stop me where I go wrong. But we reward, like in a lot of ways, this culture is designed to reward psychopaths and sociopaths and narcissists. So in some cases, people can emerge as being insanely successful, even though they're nowhere near representative of how people, how the average person behaves and how their mind and how their heart work. So what we see is like this path blazed forward that just is not at all tethered to the average person's reality. And you try and follow that path and you, you lose yourself in a bad way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about mastering your fears because I'm sure that this is something that you probably have to talk about quite a bit when you're, you know, coaching these young adults and these young entrepreneurs because, I mean, fear is a big thing that actually stops people from taking action. It stops people from actually achieving their goals in life or or who knows what it could be. But fear is a, is a big uh, – it plays a big role in everybody's life and actually stopping them being ultimately who they want to be. So can you talk about how, you know – the, the, the proper way to master fears and um, really maybe even some instances where you've helped somebody overcome their fear and they've been able to just, you know, get to a whole nother level in their life. Yeah, absolutely. I think the first thing, and but your, your assumption or your insinuation that fear is what's going to hold people back is 99.9% .9 of the time spot on. And that's true of me and it's true of anybody. Um, I think the first step is like setting realistic expectations around that. I, at times I find it frustrating to be involved in the personal development community because they make a lot of promises that just are not tethered to reality. So the first is to realize that like fear is not necessarily going to go away. Um, and, and if you're like sold to this idea or this pill or this book that says it's going to eliminate your fears, that's an empty promise. In, in most cases, you can't get it to go away. But what you really can do, and in some ways what's much more powerful, much more human, is you can get it to loosen its grip over you. And it's hard to talk about fear without talking about confidence. When, when I think about confidence, to me, 
confidence is not the situation about of being bulletproof, but it is the ability to let your excitement overwhelm your fear and overwhelm your anxiety so that you can take action. So the first, conceptually, all people really need to do is if their fear is at like 57% intensity, all you need to do is bring excitement up to a 58% intensity so that you can take action. And, and it's important for people to realize that as they face their fears, there's still gonna be some discomfort, some emotional discomfort as they stare down those fears. So setting realistic expectations. The process is actually pretty straightforward. Um, it's really seductive to, if you're, let's say, afraid of heights, to like go skydiving and face the, your biggest fear in the world all at once. But that's not at all congruent with how our minds actually like to work. Our right. minds like to have waypoints. It's kind of like going on a hike, and when you see blazers, trailblazers every 10 or 15 feet, it's much easier to enjoy the hike because you know you're on the right path, you know you're going to get home safely, all that stuff. Our mind deals with fear the exact same way. So a much better thing for somebody to do instead of just leaping out of the airplane is first to go up maybe three or four stories high and just be up high. And then after that, maybe go up to the top of the skyscraper and look over. And what you're doing by this, or just go to the top of the skyscraper, that's week two. Week three is then go to the top of the skyscraper and go up to the window and look down. And what you want to do as you start to master your fears is just nudge yourself gently outside of your comfort zone. Psychologists call this creating reference experiences so that your mind has a, a sort of mental trailblazer saying, oh, you know what? When I was three stories up, I thought it was going to be terrible. I thought I was going to die. Mm -hmm. But then I didn't. And then when I was at the top of skyscraper, I thought it'd be terrible. And it was, it made me anxious, but I, I lived and, and so on and so forth up to the point where you blatantly face your fear and, and you can stare it down. And the way this has played out in my life, by the way, the two, like, so the three biggest fears that people encounter that in my experience, one for men, their, their actual biggest fear is being laughed at or rejected by a woman they admire. For women, uh, the biggest fear oftentimes that they encounter is the fear of physical violence, generally from an unknown male. Uh, and then in general, the, the thing that most of the people I've worked with that holds them back, their fear is the fear of failure, and especially the fear of public failure. And I mentioned this because one of the biggest fears that was holding me back when I was much younger is I had, I had and still to some degree have a certain amount of social anxiety. And I walked myself through the exact process that I just described. So I didn't make, used to make eye contact with people when I was 19. So I started by making eye contact with my friends and family, just a little bit, just kind of like fleeting eye contact until I could get a little better at that. And I started making eye contact with strangers on the street, then smiling at them, then having like two minute conversations with the person at, at the coffee shop or whatever. And all of this came to a head. And by the way, in addition to slowly nudging yourself out of your comfort zone, there's a rational process that helps people master their fears. And I'll, I'll explain this in tandem with what happened with me. Fast forward, rewind to about a year, year and a half ago. And I was single and, and really wanted a great girlfriend. And I was at this concert, and I was there by myself, and there was this stunning woman next to me at the concert, also alone, which is like the best slash worst thing that could have happened to me in that situation. <laughs> and yeah. the rational process is just a couple, a series of like a couple simple questions to ask yourself. And I went through this. The first question to ask yourself as you're facing down your fears is, you know, what happens if I do nothing? Mm -hmm. And you start to realize if you do nothing, most of the time, the worst case scenario, the thing that you're actually afraid of happens because our fear holds us back from what we want generally. Otherwise, it's not a fear that we need to deal with. So if I do nothing, I, I mean, there's been a million times in my life where I've wanted to talk to somebody and didn't do it. And I know that I'll just be kicking myself later on when I go home and when I'm out of the situation. So I realize, like, okay, I, I, I've got to do something. 
Second question that I think people should ask themselves is, what's the realistic worst case scenario? Because the way that fear works in our head is it feels like if our worst case fear comes true, that nobody will ever love us and we'll never be able to make a dime again and we won't have a home and nobody will think that we're a worthy human, let alone yourself. And while fear feels that way, that's rarely the actual worst case scenario. And in, in my case, if I talk to this woman, I suppose the worst case scenario is that she's going to like scream, slap me, and yeah. throw a drink in my face. <laughs> like, I, I guess that's the worst case scenario. Right. Third question people want to ask as they start to overcome their fears is, you know, if the worst case scenario happened, how could I bounce back? And in my case, it, you know, it, it, this concert has a thousand people. I could just go to a different side of the, of the club. Um, or I could leave and talk to my brother and laugh about it, and a couple of days later it'd be okay. Uh, a funny thing about fear and, and worst case scenarios is so often things that in the moment feel like they will scar and define our lives. If you just give it a little bit of time, those things pass too, and we end up okay. Where one cool thing about humans is that we're resilient. We, we can work through things far harder than we believe that we're capable of working through. And the fourth question to ask yourself as you're staring down your fear is, you know, what can I do to hedge against the worst case scenario actually happening? So I'm, when I'm sitting next to this woman, I'm thinking, you know, if I go up to her and like grab her butt and say, hey, toots, if you're lucky, you can come home with me tonight. She should throw her drink in my face, scream and slap me. Like that seems like an appropriate reaction to that sort of like needless aggression right. and, and pigheadedness. But if you just go into it gently, and, and what I ended up doing was I, I, the venue that we were at had gargoyles, and I, I commented on the gargoyles and struck up a conversation with her that way. There's a lot of things, regardless of what your fear is, that you can do to reduce the worst-case scenario from actually happening. And when you combine that, that sort of introspective process and that planning process with slowly nudging yourself outside of your comfort zone, the really beautiful thing is then you can tap into authentic confidence, and then you can start living your life on your terms as opposed to the terms of your, your greatest fears. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I love the questions that you have to ask yourself. I actually wrote them down. And just to recap on them for everybody, the questions were, what happens if I do nothing? What is the worst case scenario? And how likely is it? How can I reduce the chance of the worst case scenario occurring? And if the worst case scenario occurs, what can I how can I bounce back from that? And these are excellent questions because like, you know, I think I really truly believe in the power of questions when, you know, you're faced with anything in life. So um I really I really enjoy this input that you're giving. Oh good. Yeah. And in questions we were talking about authenticity a few seconds ago, as well as overcoming fear. Questions a lot of times are are the key. Because like if you ask yourself a question, how can I build a house near a river? Or say say the situation is you need water. You just need water to live your human. And the question that I think a lot of people are going to ask themselves is, how can I build my house near a water source? That makes a lot of sense, and that's going to dictate how and where you build your house. But if you ask a slightly different question, how can I get water to come to me, suddenly you change the limits, and you change how you approach the problem. So questions matter a lot. And what's interesting about questions is the neurology of what happens in the mind, or the brain, I should say. Uh, when you, so like if I'm arguing with my brother, and like he, he thinks, to the best of my knowledge, this is true, he thinks cookie dough ice cream is the best ice cream. I happen to know he's wrong. I, mint chocolate chip is blatantly the best ice cream. And if I'm just arguing with him and I say like, Rob, look, mint chocolate chip is green, it's got chocolates, it's mint, it's delicious. 
he doesn't, no new neural connections are formed in his brain. What actually happens is the neural connections that tell him that cookie dough ice cream is the best are strengthened. So the way that we tend to go about arguing, whether that's internally with ourselves as we're figuring stuff out, or externally with other people, is, is a crappy way to actually persuade people. But when you ask questions, either of yourself or other people, that's when you begin to create the possibility of new neural connections. So it's not only the most creatively liberating, but it's also the most persuasive thing that you can do for yourself or others, is ask really well-formed questions. Absolutely. No, I agree with you. So I have one more question for you. And that is, uh, you know, first of all, this is a show we talk about, you know, being an entrepreneur, we talk about a little bit of business, we talk about health as well. So as you're traveling on the road, you for a lot of people, it's a struggle to, you know, not gain 50 pounds and, and, you know, not just eat junk food all the time, because they're coming across all sorts of new foods, right? So how in the world do you take care of yourself? (laughs) Well, you're on the road and, and not just like totally crash uh, from a health perspective. Oh, this is such a good question and it ties into so much of what we've been talking about. So the first is two acknowledgements. One is that it is way harder to take care of yourself while you're on the road Absolutely. than it is while you're at home. No question about that. The other is that if you have a good relationship with yourself and you realize how awesome you are, you realize you're, you're worthy of love and, and respect and connection and, and many of the better things in the world, you will realize that you are worth prioritizing. So the next step in the sequence is you realize that, okay, just because I'm on the road, just because it's a little harder, does not mean that I'm allowed to let my health slip. And the highest leverage tactics that I can recommend to people and, and the things that I actually do in my life. So when I'm at home, as opposed to being on a speaking tour, which I'm on right now, I will generally spend a lot of time lifting weights. And sometimes I, I will like seek out hotel gyms that are actually workable or local gyms and pay the $20 membership fee. But the alternative is like get involved with some sort of exercise routine that is really, really portable. So for this tour that I'm on right now, I'm doing a lot of stretching and a lot of running. And you can do those and some calisthenics, you know, push-ups, pull-ups, et cetera. And you can do that wherever you are. So you kind of want to set up a situation where you don't have as many excuses Mm-hmm. to not be healthy as you can. The other thing, and this was a tip from from somebody that I met that travels for business for 200 or so days a year, is to the best of your ability, bring your own food. Like bring hard-boiled right. eggs, spend more time at the, at the grocery, buy nuts and dried fruits or bananas or whatever healthy things you like to eat. And then I, I feel like the part of the narrative for me that took a lot longer to understand was how to manage my mental health while I was on the road. And mm-hmm. to some degree... There's, there's a lot of things that I do to manage and maximize or, or, or prioritize my mental health always, two of which are, one, I spend time meditating every day, and the other is I spend time sort of reflecting and, and writing down a few things I'm grateful for every day in the morning. Those are portable habits, but when you're on the road, for whatever reason, life is just intrinsically more stressful. Even if you have a, a generous per diem for your boss or your company is doing well, you can spend whatever you want. And I think people need to be sympathetic to themselves and empathetic to themselves and realize like, yeah, even if I'm doing this all the time, I'm under way greater stress levels. And what I do for myself and what I recommend listeners do is while you're on the road, like carve out really, really, really good time for you to do something that you find refreshing and that you find recharging. That might be going for a hike. That might be going for a museum. If I'm being completely transparent, what I've been on the road for the past three months, what I do for myself is about once a week or so, 
I hole up away from the world, either in an apartment or a hotel room, whatever I happen to have for that week. Um, and I watch Netflix and I watch, uh, recently I've been watching the league and it's crazy because I'll, I'll go from like feeling drained to after a couple hours of just like laughing and relaxing and sort of still eating healthy food, you can start to feel your energy levels go back up. So taking care of yourself on the road, completely and totally possible. It is harder than taking care of yourself while you're at home. It just requires a little bit more attention and slightly slightly more clever strategies. Yeah, no, I agree. I work with a lot of uh, businessmen that travel a lot, and it's always it's always something that we dive into quite a bit and, and really lay the groundwork on how they can travel and still maintain a healthy diet and, and exercise because most people just are under the assumption that you absolutely – no way, no how can do that. So um, it's very possible, right? Yeah, and, and out of out of almost selfish interest, what do you end up recommending to your to your people and your clients? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the things, a lot of things you're talking about. You know, mainly one of the big things is just bringing your own food is huge. You yeah. know, bringing yeah. snacks that you can take onto the plane. Um, you know, making sure that, like you had said, you you prioritize to get to the gym. You know, um, when you get to a certain location, you know, it's good to just go right to the gym. You know, don't don't like plan on it later or after dinner. I'm gonna go there because you'll never make it. So it's like when you when you hit the you know when you land and you hit your uh, hotel room, just get to the gym and get it done. So it's something you don't have to think about anymore. Uh, we also talk about because you said you know like. Sometimes it's hard to find a gym that's even worthwhile. Um, we talk a lot about um, you know doing exercises where you know you could do them just in your hotel room with absolutely nothing but your gravity, right? So um, we talk about a lot of exercises like that, and then of course um, you know making sure that even when um, you're traveling to certain areas that you are aware of some of the different uh, restaurants uh, that are that are even that you may even be going to and if not let's say you don't have time to plan any of that let's just say that um, you at least when you're going to these restaurants you know you're thinking you know meat and vegetables you're not uh, you're not just grabbing the the coca-cola and the in the massive <laughs> burger and the french fries and stuff you know you can always think to yourself meat and vegetables and, and call it safe so there's there's a lot of little tips and, and tricks um, to that whole thing but you know those are those are some of the main points for sure yeah I like that one one thing I do for myself is I realize my mental health or sorry my physical health is under more stress and pressure while I'm traveling and like I, I like any other person am kind of bad at saying no to pleasure but that simple reminder of like okay, I really need to pay careful attention to my body, makes it easier to say no to the like green chili mac and cheese and yes to the like, you know, uh, quinoa tofu vegetable bowl or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Jason, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show here. I think you shared an immense amount of valuable insight to our listeners and I am greatly appreciative of that. And, um, you know, look forward to, you know, keeping, keeping in contact with you. And for everyone who is looking to find out more about Jason or, or his work, you can go to igniteleadership.com and uh, you can reach out to him there. You can uh, enter your email address to, to get uh, publications from him. And um, heck, you might even see him on the, on the road if, when he's traveling because he's speaking everywhere right now. So once again, Jason, loved having you on the show and I really appreciate you sharing your insights. 
Oh, the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And, and quick um, clarification or pronunciation thing. It's an ignited leadership with a D. Ooh, and um, that's a good no, one. that's a, that's fine. And um, people are welcome. Also, like you can follow me on Twitter, or if you want to email me, it's Jason at ignitedleadership.com. I respond to all my emails personally and would love to hear from you. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Nick. Have a great afternoon. Talk to you soon. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye. Don't forget to check out my brand new website, newvisionexcel.com. Well, it's not really new, but it's been rebuilt with a ton of amazing new features. You can go on there and read blog articles from uh, topics like the health benefits of eating pumpkin to mindful meditation. You can also go on there and post in the comments section and start a start a great conversation about an article that you like. The other thing that you can do is you can listen to this podcast and all the other great podcasts as well. And there's tons of other things as well. Check it out. I hope you enjoy it. If you want more information to multiply your health and simplify your lifestyle, visit our website at excelpodcast.com. Until next time, have an outstanding day.